0: welcome everyone to the speak your mind podcast powered by torch pro episode number 18. this episode was a little bit different in that we did a live show at the premier headquarters um, in seattle joined by uh, two other guests richard taylor and um, dr josephine young um, we did the show in front of about 50 employees um, under Primera and about another 150 that tuned in online Um, where we got to tell our stories, our experiences with mental health, um, and then a little bit of Q&A at the end of the show. So it was really cool for us to to share that um, and have a little bit of engagement from an audience um, and just share the importance of mental health, whether it be in sports, um, for Tyler, obviously dealing with his tragedy, um, the other guests on the panel having different experiences um, and just sharing how important it is to uh, advocate, to be aware, um, and to just be open about your mental health story. So um, it was really cool for us. We got to meet a lot of cool people, um, being a cool venue at Primera. And uh, we had a lot of fun. Take a listen.
1: Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Jen Jones. I lead the Total Rewards team here at Premier Blue Cross. Thank you for joining us today. Um, we have a really exciting event. Um, I'm super excited to introduce you to our panel speakers today. We're going to be taping a podcast live. We have a small audience here at Mount Lake Terrace, and we have a number of folks that are joining us virtually as well. Um, welcome to all of you. I'll introduce the panelists in a minute, but first I want to talk about why we're doing this event. Uh, Many of you know that May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And um, mental health is a very important topic for us here at Primera. Um, Statistically, almost half of adults will face mental illness in their lives. Uh, And that's important as we think about our role here at Primera, helping our members live healthy lives as well as our employees. And these are our employees here today with us. So um, it's also an important topic for me. So I've dealt with anxiety most of my adult life. I have family members that have struggled with uh, mental illness, substance abuse, and even suicide. Um, So it's very personal. And I'm going to guess that just about everybody here has had um, either themselves or a loved one that has struggled with mental illness, yet we don't always talk about it. So that's what we're here to do today, to start, is by talking about mental health openly and honestly, We're really working to break down that stigma that um, um, can prevent us from talking and getting the help that we need. Um, So we want everyone here to know that you're not alone um, if you are struggling right now, and we want you to be open to um, accessing the support that you need. So now let's get on to our panelists. We have an awesome group of speakers here today. Um, The podcast that we are taping is called um, Speak Your Mind. And we have the hosts of Speak Your Mind with us today. Um, first, let's start with Riley Shahan. Riley, many of you may recognize, is one of our very own professional hockey players playing for the Seattle Kraken. Uh, and this last winter, Riley was featured on our Hockey Talks campaign um, that we partnered with the Seattle Kraken on, where we talked, he talked with some of his teammates about his experience um, with mental health. And we found out that Riley is in fact very passionate about the topic of mental health and we wanted to get to know more about that. Um, So uh, Riley flew in yesterday all the way from Buffalo, New York, and um, we are very happy to have him here. As an anecdote, he's also a relatively new father, so (laughs) congratulations on that. (laughs) Uh, Then we have Tyler Smith. Tyler Smith is Riley's co-host on the podcast. Tyler is a former um, hockey player for the Humboldt Broncos, and um, that isn't Humboldt, California. I looked it up, that's Humboldt, Saskatchewan. Uh, He is one of the survivors of the 2018 bus crash that tragically took the lives of 16 players, coaches, and staff members. After surviving that event, Tyler has dedicated his life uh, to being a mental health advocate, um, and he's talked really openly about his recovery, both physically, but also emotionally. He does speaking engagements um, like this one. And he has his own clothing line, Not Alone, featured on his hat. And I would encourage you to check it out. Really awesome sweatshirts as well. Um, and then um, and Tyler flew in from Calgary today to be with us. So very grateful for that. Um, then we have Richard Taylor Jr. And this is actually his second speaking engagement that I've been involved with here at Primera. Uh, Richard is a sought after mental health advocate Um, and motivational speaker. He's published seven books. Uh, He's on the board of directors of uh, Eastside NAMI, which stands for the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and he hosts his own podcast as well, Between the Dream. Um, He joined us for Suicide Prevention Month a year and a half ago, uh, and we're really, really glad to have him back. He's also been partnering with Primera to create uh, blog posts and social media content um, for our Health Source blog and mental health pages. So welcome, Richard. And then, last but certainly not least, we have our very own medical director, Dr. Josephine Young. Um, Dr. Young is has. Yep, little applause for Dr. Young there too. <laughs> Dr. Young is a pediatrician with over 30 years of clinical experience um, and is also, um, she's a passionate advocate as well for mental health as a, phys- as a physician, but also as a mother of four. Um, so thank you all so much for being here. For t- thank you for being here today. Riley and Tyler, um, I'd like to start with the two of you. I'm hoping you can each spend some time and tell us about your own journeys with mental health. And what brought you to um, creating the podcast that you uh, that you have, Riley? Why don't you?
0: Yeah. Start off. Well, thank you, <clears throat> thank you for the kind introduction, and I think this is so amazing that you guys are all here. It's uh, such an important discussion, and um, I think now we all understand how effective moving forward in the mental health space is. So thank you, uh, thank you for coming. Um, so for me, I guess my journey sort of when I look back on it, it all sort of started, I guess. When I was 15 years old, I really grasped that um, hockey could turn into something that would be really important for me. And um, the goal of becoming an NHL player for a kid growing up in Canada um, was crazy, crazy to think that could turn into something real. So 15 years old comes around and people start coming to the games and watching me play and spotlight was a little bit on me. And I never thought there was stress involved or pressure involved because it's, it's what I wanted to do. So years go by, I end up going to Notre Dame on a scholarship and um, I get to Notre Dame and I, I go through that little phase of homesickness where it was just bouts of really just anxiety and depression for a good week or two. And I get some help from my family and my, my coaches and some of my teammates and it goes away. I don't think anything of it and continue on. So the end of that year, I get drafted to the Detroit Red Wings in the first round and 21st overall and that's, unbelievable. I get to spend that day with my family and it's just another step closer to to uh, sort of getting to that dream that I always thought of. I, I'd play road hockey every morning. I would play hide and seek with my teammates in the parking lot during tournaments. I would watch leaf games with my dad. It's everything I, I thought I wanted. So time passes. Um, I start to notice that my behavior is off the ice. I was drinking a lot. I was really in, engaged in the social scene at school. Um my grades started to fall back and I was focused a lot on hockey and things were going well, but there was just these, these weird habits coming around that I wasn't really happy with. So my college years go by and I signed my first pro contract with the Detroit Red Wings and I report to their minor league team and uh, everything's, everything's going great. It's, it's what I want to be doing. I get to play my first NHL game that year and um, everyone's there watching. And it's just another one of those moments that I, I look back on and, and think it's unbelievable. I'm a kid living out his dream, So I guess from that point on, um, I start to sort of live that mold of a hockey player where uh, I feel like I have to fit in with the guys I have to do these things I have to I feel the pressure of of drinking and living hard and um, making some decisions that I wasn't really happy for happy about and I end up getting in trouble um, with the law and and charged with the DUI driving down a a one way street the wrong way where I could have killed someone I could have killed myself and at that point, it was a really eye opening experience. So I look back. And what I didn't mention before that, I even got in trouble with with the law at school doing some some other stuff. And I look back at those habits. And now, it was just an insecurity, I, w- I was just so not confident, being in big groups of people with who I was as a person, I had no self esteem that I could open up, I had no Ability to open up to people and really get to know them and put myself out there because I felt like I had this pressure to be this hockey player. So I had to sit down t- conversations with my coaches and my GMs after that that incident and I almost blew away my dream of playing in the NHL. But they were nothing but supportive, which meant a lot for me. And I think from that point on, which was in 2012, um, it's just been a transformation of of how I approach my mental health and. It has not always been a one day fix where I'm like, okay, I got in trouble. Um, I almost lost what I had worked so hard to earn. It's just a day by day thing. And I take steps backwards, take many steps backwards and then have to move forward, um, dealing with tr- getting traded a bunch of times, dealing with moving cities five or six different times, bring my girlfriend along now, my wife and, and our baby along with me. And, um, it's just been a constant battle. But when I came up and when I was 15 years old, I had no understanding that I was gonna have to deal with these things because I was living a life that I always dreamed of. I was getting paid to play a sport that I loved. I was playing with some of my idols. So that, I guess what really stuck with me was, it's not a one day fix and you see it on social media. You see it, um, all these different things being brought up to you like, oh, do this and you'll be fine, do the It's work, you gotta put in work. Um, and that's one of the biggest things I learned. So for Tyler and I to start this podcast, it was just another way of, of uh, therapy almost, talking about what we're going through and um, being able to bring on guests that have kind of sim- like experienced the same similar things. Uh, it's been really important for us. Um, and also just doing something that was a little bit uncomfortable. So I guess for me, uh, like I said, that transformation of not fixing it in one day and. Um, kind of going day by day, leaning on those people close, close to you. I, I work with a life coach, pretty much is just a therapist, builds good habits. Um, and I understand kind of when I go into certain situations, I might feel this these certain ways so I can be proactive. And that's, that's probably the biggest thing that I've learned.
1: Really, that's really great. Um, I really appreciate you sharing that story with us. Um, you know, your journey is going to be very different from Tyler's. Um, why don't we shift to you next, Tyler, and then we can move back. I got more questions for, for you, Riley, later.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to Riley's point, I think it's uh, it's so refreshing to come up from Canada and, you know, be able to do something like this. Um, I think uh, it's my first time ever in Seattle and, uh, I mean, beautiful city, but, I mean, just to, you know, feel the the fact that, you know, we're creating this space and creating this atmosphere and, um, and we're not comparing our stories. We're just able to find common ground and we're able to have these open discussions is... Super refreshing. Uh, so I'll get into my story a little bit. Um, yeah, it's crazy, because I I, uh, I guess April 6, 2018 um, was the day that I do not remember, but it forever changed uh, my life and a lot of people's lives. Uh, so our junior hockey team compiled of 17 to 20-year-old kids. We were traveling to our playoff game, and um, a semi-truck uh, blew through a stop sign and hit us going 110 kilometers an hour, uh, or I guess 80 miles, I guess it would be. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, 16 lives were lost, and then that left uh, 13 of us survivors. Um, I have no recollection from that day, uh, which I think is probably the biggest blessing in disguise you could ever imagine. Um, I know there's guys that survived and can remember waking up, and I just I, I can't imagine the mental and emotional injuries from that. Um, I'll go over a little bit about my physical injuries as well, but. It was a day that, I mean, it, it, it changed Canada. Um, there was $16 million raised in a GoFundMe for us. Um, school shut down. Um, it was a day that, I mean, you saw multiple NHL teams. We had um, idols and Canadian icons come visit us in the hotel. Um, and it was just, a, I remember a hearing stories about, you know, when people found out. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's weird because it's very bittersweet because um, I actually kind of enjoy hearing where people were uh, in a weird way. Um, my parents were traveling to go get my brother's new truck, and they got a text from one of my best friends, and he said, Did you hear? And my parents were like, Hear what? Like, we're, we're just going to get a new truck. And that's kind of when it unfolded. And believe it or not, even though I didn't remember anything from that day, um, thank goodness my mom's had the same phone number since I was a baby, because... I was able to be in the air ambulance and, and call my parents, and, and you know I think that was probably the moment that just had so much relief for them, uh, being able to know that your, your son is alive. Um, I, I was on the phone, and I guess I was just the classic, you know, get here safe, I'm okay, you know, like, don't worry, um, and I obviously wasn't. Um, I suffered a stroke that day, uh, I suffered two broken ribs, Um, broken collarbone, which required surgery that led to pretty severe nerve damage in my left arm. Uh, When I woke up, my left arm was pretty much dead and I had no idea what nerve damage was. And I really don't wish that upon my worst enemy. Um, I had six inches of my small intestine removed, which is very odd, Uh, punctured lung, uh, broken shoulder blades. So I wasn't hopping out of the hospital bed to say the least. Um, I mean, I remember kind of waking up and, and starting to come to, and my parents did such a good job of, you know, Lee, edging me into the fact that this just happened. Um, and obviously those, uh, those 13 days in the hospital were very tough. Um, I think for me, not being able to go to the funerals of 16 of the most amazing people you could ever meet. Um, I think it's, uh, I think the, the hardest part was we were that special team. It was so interesting because we were a group of good hockey players that just loved the game, but we were also just damn good people. Um, our coach Darcy Hogan, who we lost as well, just created such an amazing space. I mean, we had so much fun coming to the rink every day. I have a tattoo on my arm, and it's uh, every day is a great day to be a Bronco gentleman. Uh, just like something like that, he would come in and he would just say his dad jokes, say that, and I think he just, you know, being able to be a part of that space, it it obviously made things so much tougher. But it's also it's refreshing to know that I was able to experience that with, I mean, these incredibly special human beings and. Um, as the days moved on, um, I think it was a, I'd never been through mental health experiences. I i never understood grief. I never understood trauma. Um, and for us, I mean, this was a trauma that was on a national scale. Um, it was every time you pulled up Twitter, every news station, you know, people were dropping stuff off every day. I mean, the, the support was, I think, something that helped us get through a lot of the days, but it was also tough because I just wanted to crawl into a hole and not come out. But also I wanted to... In some sense, let people know that I'm 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 okay. Like I'm I'm trying my best. I'm doing my best. But um, those you know those weeks and months following were incredibly unique because I had no idea how to take that first step. I had no idea um, how do you grieve the loss of 16 people. Um, How do I think to myself? You know, I'm I'm trying to answer these unanswerable questions. I'm sitting there every day and I'm like, why am I here? You know, like why is Stephen not here, why is Darcy not here? I mean, there's there's 16 families that are completely broken and I'm thinking to myself, well, what gives me the right to go into society and, and put a smile on or go have a laugh? You know, like that's, like, I can't be doing that. Like, that's not fair. They're, like I said, there's 16 families that are forever broken and I'm still here. It just didn't make any sense to me and I had no idea how to navigate that. And, I think, I mean, as time went on, um, I'm so incredibly grateful for my parents. Uh, My mom said she was hovering, which she was a little bit. She took some time off work and, you know, took me to physical therapy every day and and got me through those days. But I can only imagine how many times she looked at me and and asked me how I'm doing. And I just gave her the classic, you know, I'm fine. You know, don't worry about me, just keep moving on. And I think that's, uh, from their perspective, I couldn't imagine just because I, I think they obviously knew their son was in so much pain, but how do you bring that out? Um, because they were also in a ton of pain. Um, I think we were all trying to navigate this grief process in a, in a very odd way. Uh, my parents both have incredibly um, profound stories as well. My dad's an amputee. My mom was adopted. Her mother committed suicide when she was 12. I mean, like... I, but as time went on, we were h- having these conversations. You know, it was it was refreshing to have those conversations. But for me, I mean, growing up as a hockey player, I didn't want to show any weakness. I didn't want any shame attached to me. I just wanted to move on. I wanted to let the physical stuff heal. And I thought the emotional and mental would follow. I honestly thought it was just this is perfect. You know, like I can just focus on the the physical and everything else will be good in the meantime. But um, it's not the case. <laughs> um, that summer was tough. Uh, I think I really relied on, you know, even just as a 19-year-old kid, you shouldn't look forward to Fridays and Saturday nights of drinking with your friends as much as I did. But it was a time where I was able to just be free. Um, it was a time where I, I was able to just free my mind from every thought, and then wake up and be like, "That was so much fun," you know. But I was blacking out every night, and my once again, my poor parents. I mean, how do you have these conversations? But luckily, I mean, they they came up to me and it was like, "You just got to chill. You just got to relax and decompress." and um, but actually, you know, the physical stuff was going really well and I moved on and, and went and played for the Broncos again, surprisingly. Um, I think it was seven months later, I went and suited up and um, the only reason I went back was for everybody we lost. Um, that was the only thing that was driving me to move forward. There was two other boys that went back and played and, you know, to be able to put that jersey on. and be able to do that for them was something that I can forever be proud of and forever cher- cherish um, but after 10 games I mean I I had I was just ha- not having fun um, and people could see that and that first moment where I realized that I needed to start taking care of myself was when I told my bill of parents uh, for anybody who doesn't know about a bill of family it's the family that you live with when you play hockey somewhere else and um, I have a, a I had these two amazing billet parents, uh, Paul and Nancy, who had been billeting junior hockey players for 15 years. Um, and unfortunately, we lost our billet brother, um, Parker Tobin, who I lived with. And uh, obviously, they're grieving as well. But they could also see that I was not doing well. Um, and when I told them that I wanted to step away, I think uh, you know, being able to have that hug with Nancy and, and being able to you know, have her look me dead in the eyes and say, promise me that you're going to seek help. Um, that was that moment where it was just like, oh, my God, you know, like I'm trying so hard to, to put a mask on. I'm trying so hard to suffer in silence. I'm trying so hard to just have these surface level conversations so people know I'm, I'm fine. But at the end of the day, this is starting to really boil up and hurt my relationships and the people around me as well. Um, and that was that moment. Uh, I think that is ultimately a big reason why I'm here today. Um, I've. I never anticipated doing anything like this. Uh, believe it or not, I hate talking about myself. <laughs> um, but, you know, being able to do the podcast and being able to public speak and being able to do, uh, you know, the clothing line now, it's just something that is just so refreshing to for me to know that, you know, these conversations are, are allowed to happen now. And, you know, being able to be a part of these conversations and... And promote that vulnerability and promote the fact that you're not alone um, is just so refreshing. And I just, uh, I once again, appreciate you guys for being here and wanting to listen. And um, I'm sure I'll get a, a little bit more into m- the more stuff I learned and the many lessons I learned along the way. Um, but that's kind of just a, a little gist of my story. So.
1: And I have to say, um, <clears throat> I'm thankful for your a mom. Is that how you say mm-hmm. it? That she said, promise me you'll get help. That's that's really powerful. Before we move on to Richard, how did the two of you come together? I don't know if I heard that from the story. Did I miss that?
0: So no, we when we started, I guess I started the podcast and Ty was our first first guest or second guest. First, like first guest. First, well, you did you your yeah, story. So then, yeah. yeah. So first guest, and then he was it was such a great episode, and we had so much fun talking with him. And it was like why why not do this together? Because the other guy that we were doing with was kind of like in and out, and he didn't really understand. Um, the, the experience that I had, not like in a, just kind of in a weird way. And Ty was just awesome. So yeah, the relationship blossomed. And then now we have 17 episodes later, I think. So yeah, it's been going great. That's
1: great. Okay. Well, Richard, I want to move on to you next. Um, I know you have um, a story of your own that then has led you to be the mental health advocate uh, and speaker that you are today. So Share with yeah, us most definitely.
3: Um, first and foremost, Riley and Tyler, thanks for having me on with you guys today. Um, it's been awesome just watching you all's journey and seeing what you all are doing with this space. So I think it's awesome. Um, I love what you stated. You said that, you know, this is never what you expected to do. Because that was me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was me. I was a uh, a highly uh, touted athlete coming out of high school. So I thought football, NFL was going to be kind of my jam. But um Born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. And so for me, my story kind of got started when I was 10. Uh, I was bullied because of my weight very early on. And so at the age of 10, that bullying led to one event in particular to where um, my bullies had me in the bathroom, and they were picking on me. And that day, I went home just playing back the, the memory of that moment and remembering the words of, we can do this because people like you don't know how to defend themselves, so we do what you as we please. That day, I went home um, full of like anger and hatred and frustration towards myself, not even them. Like something that I couldn't change at the time, which my which was my physical appearance. And I had this thought where I said, "What if I could just cut some of the fat off of my body and everything would be okay?" And in that moment, it was the opening to the doorway of self-mutilation. And so for the next ten years. 10 to 20, it was this battle that was really interesting. I really, I didn't talk about it much, right? There were times where I tried to, and I come from a community, which I think a lot of us do, which is this conversation, well, a multitude of conversations, not just one, right? Uh, for some of us, it's what happens in his house stays in his house. For others, I grew up in a faith background. So it was, you're not praying hard enough. You're not close enough in your faith. Um, my grandfather is the son of slaves from Possum Trot, Mississippi. And I was told that He went through too much and I don't know what it's like to be sad or I don't know what it's like to be depressed. And so all of these things kind of just played over and over in my head. So I stayed quiet, quiet and silent with my struggles for a very long time. Uh, By the time I was 13, uh, I was pretty much in this battle of what is my purpose? Why am I here? And so in that constant battle of that, it led to what it transitioned from just cutting to suicide attempts and then starting to try and find, like, access to different uh, lethal means. Interestingly enough, though, once I got to high school, shot up in height, became a standout quarterback, started getting scholarship offers galore my freshman year, and everything changed on the external. Internally, I was still struggling, though, and I didn't let anybody see it. I love what you talked about, Tyler, when you said the whole mask concept, right, because that's a big part of it. So for me, outside, everybody saw... Richard, the quarterback, making the, the city newspaper each week, making all city. And, and I kept that persona on. But internally, I was constantly seeking validation, whether it came through the form of relationships. Like you said, how do you, you know partying on the weekend, how do we spend that social time? And so that was a huge part of my life um, throughout the high school phase, senior year. Uh, even though I was going through the suicide attempts um, with nobody knowing, it kind of started to spill over. Took a hit on the field from that, woke up in the hospital and the doctors telling me that they ran some tests, find out that I have, at the time, a heart murmur. And this was during the time where athletes were either collapsing on the field or the court, heart arrhythmias and all of these issues. So every scholarship offer that I had got stripped away immediately. And in this, um, I just felt like a failure. So the imposter syndrome piece came up. My mom and dad did not make a lot of money. And so for me, like, I felt this immense amount of responsibility to be the one to like change life for them. And once I found out I wasn't gonna be able to play football anymore, I think that transition, that's where it really like started to, to, to change for me. Ended up going to college at Northern Illinois University, and my life spiraled out of control over the span of 18 months during that time. Literally walked onto the campus August of 2006. And by January 2008, I went from 200 pounds to 370 pounds, dealing with like really bad physical health issues. One point in time, my blood pressure was like 302 over 256, so like beyond stroke level. And I just wasn't caring. Like I I was so depressed that I did not care. You couple that with the fact that you know when when we go through traumatic situations or when we deal with like myself, I dealt with high anxiety and depression, and so. I was at a point with the suicide to where I just always felt like I just want to feel a little bit of life, and I don't care what form that comes through. And so one of those forms for me came through romantic relationships. The most important one at the time being the one that lasted for that year and a half, and I became the victim of domestic abuse. And I was okay with dealing with being abused because I felt like at least I had something to connect myself to. And then you couple that with the fact that I was failing in school uh, on academic probation three semesters straight. Dr. King Day of 2008, I think that was kind of like the culmination of everything for me. And I just snapped. It was a particular incident that happened with the person that I was with during that time. And we lived in the same dorm hall on the same floor. I just finished washing dishes. We're in uh, a huge argument where I know everybody who's on that space can hear it. And my final words before I blacked out were, if you don't give a care about me and nobody else cares about me, then I don't care about myself. And I took the blade that I had that I had just finished washing and went down my wrist five times where the word love is now tattooed on my arm. And um, I woke up to a doctor cleaning me up, letting me know, Mr. Taylor, you tapped the main vessel at the top of your wrist and no blood would come out. His next words to me were, you have a purpose in life and you need to figure out what it is. Little did he know Purpose was the very thing that I had struggled with for so long. And so in this struggle with purpose, um, I sat on that. The next day, my story made it to the school newspaper. It was out. My classmates knew. Um, I know we're a little older. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm with the TikTok and Instagram generation. Don't get me wrong, I am, right? But you know, this is when Facebook was, you know, Facebook had just kind of started making this rise. And my story started making it through people's statuses. Um, and for me, I was embarrassed. And so I said, I'm either going to do this again and succeed or I'm going to drop out and go back home. Um, I couldn't drop out and go back home because literally a week later, uh, Northern Illinois University experienced um, what is now known as the Valentine Day Massacre, where a student or from another college traveled up two and a half hours and shot up the uh, classroom hall that sat right across from the dorm hall that I lived in. And so it put me in this really weird predicament to where I had to, to face my demons and i ended up staying in school And the dean of students told me if i was going to stay in school i needed to go and seek out counseling at our school's counseling department and that's what i did and from there i started getting the help that i needed and i fought it like i'm not gonna, i love what you said about the whole thing like this is a process right and so in this i did not willingly say oh yeah i'm i'm going to seek out therapy everything's good that is not that is not how this happened I am like, I'm stonewalled first day sitting there just like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. Everything's good. I know I'm like, that was it. That was me. And I, I had this barrier up because all of those um, quotes that I had heard from growing up, you're not going to let no shrink tell you about yourself. Like, all of that was there. And so it wasn't until I had actually let that wall down to see that it wasn't about somebody trying to tell me about myself, but rather an opportunity to understand how those experiences had led me to this point but also to start getting the healing and freedom and so it from there you know i i lost 170 pounds and i said if i can do it in this one area of my life maybe i can do it in these others and so it just started tacking, tackling them little by little the weight the mental and emotional are so connected. I know we got a chance to talk about this before we got started, but that was a huge part of it. I was able to graduate from college. Um, and and from there, I'm, I've always been a natural like people person. I love people. I want to see people do well. And um, I didn't realize that all of the little forced Easter speeches that I had to do at church in front of people. I'm a singer too. So like, I got my start singing in front of people, so speaking was never like a thing, like an issue, but I didn't realize that all of those little buildups would lead me to the work that I'm doing now in this space as an advocate and taking these best practices and saying, hey, this is how we can move forward together. And so for me, my goal is not only to simplify the conversation of mental health for people, but I like to use my story as hope to to bridge this, um, this gap that's been there for so long for people to seek out help. And then in this, for us to mobilize, to realize that life is, one, worth living, two, that we're not alone, and three, that um, I think in this, we deserve to be able to see what a full, healed self looks like. And so that's a little bit about me. Thank you all again for having me.
1: You talk fast. I was trying to take my notes. That was like that was like
0: a. you've done this before. Yeah, this is,
1: that was a post, though, in and of itself. The life is worth living, and the, yeah, excellent. Um, All three of you have amazing stories and very different stories, uh, which we talked a little bit about. You know, everybody's story is different. Um, Dr. Young, I'm going to pull you into the conversation here. As you listen to these stories, how do you reflect on what you've seen both um, as your role as a clinician, but maybe even your role as a mom?
4: No, it's it's interesting. You can't be in the presence of such authentic stories um, without... Sort of, you know, for me, bring my full authentic self to, to this conversation. So I'm going to throw you a tiny curveball and tell you a little bit about my background. Okay. Um, so my, um, so and I and I think I'll explain a little bit why I'm so passionate about mental health and especially for teenagers. And so growing up, you know, immigrant to the U.S. and always did well in school. And we moved right when I was in sixth grade. Moved into a school Southern California. And all of a sudden, the fact that I was Asian was this perfect storm of you know, bullying. And it got so bad that the principal actually sat me down as a seventh grader and said, we recognize the bullying is really bad. We don't know how to stop it. Um, so maybe you should consider changing schools. And they had this conversation with me without my parents. And, and my 13-year-old self responded and said, There's no guarantee that any other school is going to be any better, so I've seen the worst of what can be here, I'm staying. Um, They weren't necessarily happy with that, but there we were. And I came through that feeling relatively unscathed. That was quite a delusion. Um, and, And so I focused on being a really good student. You know, my identity was built on that because the way for me to leave that situation was, I'm not going to focus on them, I'm not going to try to fit in to where people don't see me as a part of them. And so I'm gonna be a really strong student and, and all that. So fast forward, go through high school, valedictorian, blah, blah, blah. And I get admitted into this um, accelerated uh, program that you get admitted to college and medical school at the same time, do everything in six years. And I get there and all of a sudden, bam, I get hit with everybody else is as smart, if not a good deal smarter than I am. And all of a sudden, all the self-doubts of my whole identity built on I'm a strong student. I I got it all together. And I didn't. I absolutely did not. But heaven forbid that I go seek help, because this is now in the 1980s. You didn't go seek help. You weren't necessarily seeing other people talking about this. And I was in this program with 50 other kids. All, I mean, valedictorian was a given. Straight A's was a given. You know, so many of us were struggling. But we were not about to tell anybody because it might we were all going on to be doctors. We didn't know how that was going to impact us professionally in the future. so we couldn't tell it was a secret you know or, or we would talk to each other, but we couldn't share with, with any at least we felt like we, we couldn't. And there were some dark days. there were some dark days why I seriously thought maybe the only way to put an end to all of this is just to put an end to it. Um, and I never went as far as making any attempts because for me, it was the connection to my parents. I knew that my parents could never tolerate if I had done something like that. I couldn't do it to them. So they were ultimately my lifeline. And you know, and as I was struggling with school and everything, they're like, you know what? If it doesn't work, come home, it's fine. You know, you can be a doctor, you cannot be a doctor, whatever, it's all good. And I, they didn't realize how badly I was struggling, but for them to, to uh, provide me with options was a lifeline that they provide. I actually didn't share with my parents until a couple years ago that all this happened. And they're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea you, know, you were carrying all this. And so for me, it's been since then looking back, um, you know, recognizing that yeah, during college I went through a period of depression but was not diagnosed at the time, was not treated at the time, and really spent, I think part of what helped me through was investing my time helping other uh, fellow students that were struggling in the same way. And somehow we found our way through it um, together. And so then you know, going forward as a clinician, talking with teenagers, you know, sort of seeing them in similar places, the pressure that they put on themselves it's helping them constantly see options. Because you know choosing to end a life has to do with, in that moment, not seeing any other options but this path. And, and it's that decision in that moment. And so the more that we can stay connected and, and help everybody realize that, hey, you have options, so that in that moment, there's another path. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that's where that passion comes from, because of recognizing back then, I should have sought help. I maybe could have and just didn't realize it. But helping others sort of see that. And and also helping all the adults in the lives of kids. Like, you never know when somebody's going to turn to you in that moment. So, So reach out. Be there. You don't even have to offer the perfect advice. You know, you can just be there, hear them, connect in that moment so they know at another moment they can come back and connect.
1: And has that experience that you had in college then, uh, obviously it shaped you as a person, but then now as you're a clinician, now helping teens, I imagine that lent to your ability to, to help Absolutely. your patients. Absolutely.
4: It's it's being there with them in that moment and, and really exploring what it is about them. Because for each individual person, I mean, as you hear, I mean, everybody has their own story. You know, everybody in this room has their own story that shapes their experiences and and viewpoints, and so, you know, in working with the teens, it's really understanding where they're coming from and helping them see that, you know, going to see a therapist, seeking counseling, it is a matter of getting skills. I mean, I literally said to my patients, I'm send, you know, I'm recommending that you go see a therapist, not because I think you're crazy, but I think because there are some skills that you could really learn from a therapist to help you deal with the things that you're dealing with. And we get through this point now, there will be other things that'll come up later. And so it's really building your toolbox. And not every therapist can build that with you in the same way. And so try out different people. You know, if it's a fit, then great. If it's somebody you feel like you can't have a real conversation with, then don't bother. You know, find somebody else. And I know finding somebody is hard enough, but finding the right person is important Um, and being able to, to have that conversation and you know, to that end, it's really um, also uh, giving them an option and, and thinking about it. So oftentimes, what would happen is, you know, a parent would bring in their teen. The teen would sit in the corner on their phone. The parent would be talking to me about everything that's going on, and I look over and say, "Hey, just so you know, listen a little bit because I'm going to check with you to see if you buy any of what they're saying." um and so after the parent says everything i'm like okay is there anything else you want to add they're like no i'm like great i'm going to invite you back out to the waiting room and i'm going to talk with your child and so then we have a conversation like okay so what do you think you know what do you think about what was said all of that and i hear their opinions sometimes they're like yeah they're right you know other times like no I, I don't you know i'm fine there's there's no issues and so then we kind of talk about so what are we going to do you know because Either there's the recognition that there's something going on with them, to which therapy would be helpful. And I think in other times, like, you know, the issue's not me, you know, it's all them. I'm like, okay, great. You're still gonna have to deal with that. So, (laughs) you know, are you willing to talk with a counselor to start to sort some of that out? And we can certainly bring your family, your parents, into this from a family therapy standpoint because none of this happens in isolation. Um, I don't think I've ever had anybody turn me down um to, to go see a counselor in the end because it really was about it's not that you're a problem and you need to be addressed. It's like here's something we can look at together and how do we build your resilience? How do we fill your toolbox so that you're ready for the next things that come on in life. And and Riley I love what you said about, you know, this is not a quick thing. You know, there are some days that are good and other days that that you know are are rough. And so you know coming back to myself for a second, um, So back uh, in last fall, I had two really close friends pass away within two weeks of each other. And that was with both of them entering hospice at the same time over the previous six months. And it just sort of like all happened really, really fast. And so I was sad, you know, all the grief and, and all the things you would expect. And then all of a sudden, I went through this period of just like feeling super anxious. Never in my life had I felt anxious. I just, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, like I couldn't breathe, I couldn't focus. I'm like, what is going on? This is insane. And then finally, I'm like, that's it. I'm gonna go find a therapist. I I need help because I cannot figure this out. There's nothing more aggravating than the doctor not being able to diagnose themselves. So so I found a therapist and we just started talking and and eventually realizing that, wow, anxiety can be a manifestation of grief. I was like, ah, did not see that one coming. And all of a sudden, like, rather than trying to, you know, process my grief or get over it or whatever it was, I just decided to embrace it full on and just feel all the emotions that went with it. Because, you know, with every loss, I'm sure, as everyone's experienced, it it sort of brings up memories of the previous losses, and and it just compounds itself. And, you know, I had lost my dad kind of all of a sudden— um, a couple years before that, and my, my brother, I was with him his last days, um, you know, a, a few years before that. And so it just all kind of came in this huge flood. And so if I'm like, okay, I am just going to trust this, and I'm just going to lean into it. And I just cried and cried over all kinds of things for a period of time. And, and that actually really, really helped address the anxiety feeling now i'm still you know left with the sadness of the grief but even just all of these experiences you know have helped me realize like how complex this is and how when we limit ourselves and say well i'm going to i'm going to go to the doctor and take care of my physical stuff but the mental health stuff no no i can deal with that myself you know that's probably it's really the reverse we are probably least equipped to deal with the mental health pieces and i think you know what we from a from a clinical perspective, I feel like all the clinicians have the responsibility to make it as easy as possible for people to come in to get their sinus infection treated as it is to get their anxiety addressed or their depression or or just that sense of, I don't feel right, I don't know what's wrong with me, and not have it be like, oh, it's all in your head, get over it, you know, kind of a thing. And so how do we continue to open up those spaces and, and have those really, um, safe authentic conversations.
1: Yeah, I know I've always I've always um, joked with folks that if I, you know, told you that I had tendonitis in my elbow, you'd be like, "Oh, that's that's nice," you know, whatever. But if I came in and started off a conversation said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm really anxious." I'm really depressed. Yeah. you know, people are going to kind of not know what to do, and and it makes it it makes it difficult. But I think the more conversations we have, the more we realize that we all have a physical health and we all have a mental health, mm-hmm. um, and we need to take care of both. No matter right. where you are in the health to illness spectrum, um, we need to take care of right, both. Right. For yeah, sure. and, and
4: we're all in one body. You know, no matter it's one physical body, it's one you know, it's it's one mind and heart all together. So.
1: So, um, and and I'll ask this really for anybody to comment on. Um, it seems like I was at a conference recently where they were sharing some statistics about um, depression in particular, and they were um, sharing that over the last two years, some of the numbers have really skyrocketed. And again, partly because I'm a mother of teens that are knocking on young adulthood, um, but also as I think about all your stories, all of you had you know the beginnings of, of. Um, um, issues and you know um, um, trouble starting in your late teen years. But it was as high as 70% of 18 to 24-year-olds that were reporting moderate to severe depression. And do you think that that's, I mean, some of it, you know, we we kind of suppose is partly because of what we're going through with COVID and a lot of um, change. But is that partly because more people are talking about it, or do you think that the prevalence has actually gone up?
0: I I, I guess from my experience, like, I just see like it's so easy to compare yourself now and I mean you have social media and like you have people posting and you're allowed to make yourself look like a fake version of themselves. you go on LinkedIn you can see everybody's resume of what they've done in their past and it's it's so hard to not compare yourself to to that person and I think like even for me as a hockey player and It's like a constant push to get better, you want to get better. And so that means I'm going to be comparing myself to the guys that are better than me. And then I'm, I'm going to be always searching how I can, how I can get there. But that's not, that's not healthy. Like, there's so much to just being like, you talk about being grateful, being thankful for what you have, the position, everything you've worked for, give yourself credit. I've learned a lot about giving yourself credit for what you've, what you've earned. And I think that's helped me be a little more at peace for, for what I've earned, I guess. Yeah, I think even with
2: like the giving yourself credit, um, I had a tough time like celebrating the small victories. Like even like some days, like just like getting out of bed, it's just like so like you can celebrate that like some days like truly. That's right. And I think even like for for me, I mean the healing aspect. Like I just wanted to rush everything, and I think we're in such a rush, rush, rush world, and it's so hard to just for people to just like decompress. And like I even got a question uh, on a podcast with one of the other survivors, and he. He said, you know, everybody's been like, oh, screw COVID. We're done with COVID. And hey, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I do want to get back to real life. But he said, you know, what did you improve upon during COVID? And I was like, wow. Like, <laughs> never really thought about that. And honestly, like I can say now, like, I for the most part, I can be content with my own thoughts and just sit there and not have my mind constantly spinning and not, you know, trying to do this and make sure I'm doing this and this and that. And um, I think it's just the... Like, uh, like both of you kind of said, like embracing the good and the bad. Um, as tough as it is, like, I mean, by no means am I saying I've embraced the fact that, you know, I lost six, we lost 16 amazing people. But I think now I can embrace the fact that they're still here. You know, like they are with me and I can look up through my sunroof and I can be like, hey guys, you know, like miss you, what's going on? You know, like I can have those chats. And I think to go back to it, I mean, just like finding what works for you and sticking with that. And, and I think with our youth, I mean, I am a little bit terrified just because it has been tough. I mean, it. I can't imagine even just like the high school, the, the sports. I mean, losing that hope and losing those kind of expectations of what's going to happen has been, um, I think, very eye-opening. Um, and I have talked about, you know, how fragile I think our youth are going to be coming out of this. So, I mean, being able to create that space where like their emotions can be validated and those conversations can be validated as well is something that, I mean, I have learned throughout this. And I think we all are continually learning how much has changed. But um, yeah, that's kind of what I took from it.
3: Jen, I think to your question, it's, it's a little bit of both, right? So we are in this space now where it's like, hey, mental health awareness. So people feel comfortable being able to open up and say, oh my god, yes, I've been sitting on this for so long. I struggle too. But then on the flip side, I mean, COVID was the biggest gut punch that I think we've all taken, you know, unexpectedly over the last two years. So that being said, it specifically to the 18 to 24 piece that you mentioned, you know, that's like that's identity phase for so many. Right. Like we're transitioning out of having people tell us how to be. And now we're having to figure it out on our own. Right. And so you couple that with the two years that we've just experienced. And it's like, I really don't know who I am, right? The isolation piece has increased. And so I think with that being said, as we make people aware, and to Riley's point about the comparison, like COVID put us in a position to where we got a chance to have to sit and pay attention to people's lives on social now. Right, we get a chance too much screen time. I, I hate my iPhone right now because it tells me exactly how much time I spend every Sunday at the same time. Right? Like, just, it just—it never fails. But that being said, though, too, I think that to that, you know, we've got to be able. I love what you said about creating those like spaces. And I think in this, because we know that both are on the rise—the prevalence and also the conversation of awareness. Like, what does mobilization look like when it comes to hey, now that we've talked about it, how do we start to heal and deal? How do we start to learn so that we, we're we not as fragile, you know, coming out and understanding that we are capable and strong enough to be able to handle this? So I do think it's that balance of both and being able to now curb that enthusiasm from it to, like, push people in the right direction forward.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, I, you know, um, I know a lot of folks want to kind of demonize social media, and I think it does play a big role. But one one kind of realization I had with my own children recently is that. It's it's yes the perfect you know silhouette that you see of people on social media, but it's also the time that would have otherwise been spent on maybe healthier things, right? So for my kids, if they're just sitting there scrolling, they they could be engaging with their friends. They could be establishing those relationships so that when they have those ups and downs in life, they have that network to catch them and support them. Um, and so that's something I've been thinking about a lot too. Um, I want to I pivot to um, something that that I was excited about having um, the three of you in particular on our panel today, and that is kind of gender stereotypes around mental health, right? So, I mean, I can't thank you enough for being. I mean, again, I'm going to go stereotypical here for a minute, but you think, you know, big tough hockey players in particular, <laughs> you know, quarterbacks, you no. know, that are that are being so vulnerable and so open about um, struggles with mental health, which we all as humans have and feel. Um, but how has that been um, in terms of like how did your teammates respond when you started talking more openly? Um, how has that been a?
0: Yeah, that, I mean, to your point for sure, one hundred percent. It's it's tough in the mail. With you get like you go golfing with your buddies and you hit a shot doesn't go too far. They go oh, did you hit it with your purse or like something like you get all these little like slogan you know. <laughs> I hit the ball pretty far. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, no one ever says that. Yeah. Uh, but just like for me and in my in, in my past, I actually did get a lot of um, help when I did approach my team, which was like very I was very thankful for because I think if I didn't, then things probably could have gone in another direction. But it's super intimidating to bring that up to your teammates because. You don't want to put your problems on anybody. And it's just, it's a really uh, intimidating experience. But I think for me the after I got in trouble that time when I turned pro and uh, I got the DUI and I, I didn't know what was going to happen. The best thing that happened for me or one of the best things that happened for me was my captain, his name's Jeff Hogan. Um, he brought me into his home and he, he gave me a room in his basement. He had two boys at the time, two little boys that would come down and play mini sticks all the time. And um, And then he just sat me down and he had some conversation with me about his history coming into the league and stuff that he had dealt with. And it was kind of very similar. And, and that was so important for me because I didn't have my parents around. I was a 20 year old kid and um, it was just so, it, it kind of just allowed me to just decompress like we, we spoke about. So as as hard as it is, I think too, you'd be surprised the people that are there for you to support you, especially in um, for us in again, the sports world, I think um, it's hard to come up to a, another male and be like, look, I'm having problems. but if someone's coming up to me, I'm 100% opening my doors and I'm going to be like, okay, like, let's talk about it. I want to be there for you. And I think that kind of goes across the board.
2: Yeah, somebody, uh, one of my best friends actually sent me a TED Talk one time and it was about, you know, being a good listener. And I was like, okay, well, like, we listen every day, you know, classroom, work, whatever it is. And I ne- I think we kind of underestimate the power of listening, especially in a conversation. And it talks about how you know being a good listener really does dictate how good of a speaker that speaker or how good that speaker will speak to you and I was like wow like that's so true and I think for me I I always took you know my relationships and conversations for granted to a certain degree um, I love social settings as well I love being with people I love meeting new people um, but I mean I, I was so good at just having surface level conversations and i I can't tell you how many times now i've cried with a group of my buddies i mean i even before covid we had a get together with one of our friends and um one of the songs came on from uh, it was me and Stephen Wax's favorite song from uh, that humble team and uh, song came on and i would usually kind of just push it off keep dancing you know i'm feeling pretty good Um, but this time you know i for the first time i stepped away i went outside i sat on the front porch and i i can't tell you how amazing was to see probably four or five of my big burly like buddies like i'm talking like big dudes like fighters (laughs) like like farm boys and i they literally just came and sat with me and just like wanted to know like what's going on and you know like understand a little bit more and i think just something like that i mean i always had this misconception that you can't be doing that you know my dad's the epitome of a man my dad can fix anything My dad's an amputee. He continually inspires me. He'll do anything like, I mean, I'm talking the epitome of a man and he, it's not like he ever just, you know, like said, no, don't ever talk about it. But it was just like, we just never had those conversations. But I mean, two Christmases ago, I get home and he's in the garage waiting for me. And we just have this, this really meaningful conversation. He breaks down, I break down and it's just like, wow, you know, like our relationship is getting deeper and deeper and stronger and stronger just because we're allowing ourselves this time and space to express these emotions and and have these emotions and also have these emotions validated just because we're allowed to you know as men i think we're always taught you know don't cry don't express your emotions but i mean to be able to now look back and think about how many times that i've just sat around with a group of friends and we've all just shared our stories and just you know strengthened our connections and strengthened our relationships i mean. I think it's just something that has been so profound for, uh, at least for me.
3: Um, I love what you said there on the back end of like where we are now. Like, and I think that's, that's true. I'll be honest with you. Mine wasn't like that at all though. Um, playing football in high school, college, it was labels, you know, like if to your point, if you cry, you're soft, man up, the labels of being gay, right? Like, and so like all of these different conversations that came and I think that. Created a very unhealthy cycle for me, but with that being said, though um, those motivated me to really start pushing back, and it wasn't until I found my voice after being healed and going to therapy and all of that. But that being said, um, I'm trying to get folks now, and I love this. It doesn't necessarily need like my my philosophy is you know we learn about our mental health so that we can learn to be proactive rather than reactive, and I think within this it shouldn't take. A traumatic response to an experience for us to open up our hearts and carry empathy, specifically around the social status that's been put when it comes to athletes or men in general, right? Like, and so to that point, um, the response wasn't great for me at all, and I battled for a solid ten years, constantly going back and forth and questioning. And once I started doing this work within the realm of working with athletes on the mental health side. Um, I, I noticed that was one of like the like, big red flag areas immediately. And I was like, we need to start tackling this, right? And so I love the fact that you carry it from this fact that like, folks saw your story and were like super empathetic. And while I think that that's great, I'm like, let's carry the same heart um, when it comes to the fact that it doesn't need to be this when you see your teammate crying, and maybe they can't express their emotions, or maybe you see your colleague in a space where they are weak, whether it's from a chronic illness and they are are struggling to keep it together at work, or whatever the case might be, because I think it, it, it extends beyond just the sport. It's also within our our daily spaces as well. You know, whether you're a welder or a mechanic, like we all carry these emotions, and we have to be able to to discuss them and embrace and have that empathy, and so. Mine wasn't a great experience, but because of it, I've I've literally tried to use it as as a as a positive to really help change that narrative.
1: Great. So I want to talk a little bit about treatment, um, because I think one of my goals here today is yes to open up the dialogue, but also to make people understand that there is help out there, right? Um, all of you have mentioned getting professional help. I know I have. I have a therapist that is she's she's the best ever. Um, I've known her for twenty years, but. Oh. Um, but, but what was that like engaging, and it's not necessarily therapy, right? But treatment in general, like what were those things that helped you to get better? And what was that journey like? I know, Richard, you talked a little bit about it, how, you know, you went into your first session like, oh, no, this isn't, this isn't for me. But when, it, when did it click that it was for you? And, and how, did you, how did you find those things that really were most helpful?
3: I think for me, it was a lot of like realizing that I wasn't crazy. Right. A lot of it was the deconstruction of labels, Right, the deconstruction of everything that was said, having to go back to the root cause of being bullied for the first time. Um, I think a lot of times when people say things to us or they do things to us, it's very easy for us to put on the cloak of those words, to carry them, and start to believe them about ourselves. And so that deconstruction that came through therapy was a huge part of it. Um, and then I would also say, too, for me, practices around being able to embrace a new outlook on community. Giving people a chance because I had started to close everybody off. I became highly isolated, and that's hard for somebody who's an extrovert. Extrovert like I bounce off the walls, y'all. And so for me, like, and I love people, but I got to a point if I can be honest where I started hating everybody around me, even individuals that didn't do anything. And so I think that being said, having to one stay open to the idea of giving people a chance, but then also too the identity piece. You know, I was right in that that space of the eighteen to twenty four when all of this bubbled over. Riley, you kind of mentioned it, too, like you were 20, right? Boom. And and so in that, it was having to really start to look at myself identity-wise through the the help with the therapy, um, understanding that, I was more than the labels i was more than the diagnosis my life still had a purpose finding that value and that worth and i think those practices that came in my therapist made me look in a mirror every day for six months straight and say something positive about myself before i walked out for the day i didn't believe anything i was saying at the time right (laughs) but that being said over an extended period of time what you started to notice was that you really had to start looking at what you were saying and ask the questions? Well, is this true about me, right? And so I think that those were some of the like real easy, simple practices that helped me.
1: Riley, I know I listened to your podcast um, in prep for this, and I know um, you mentioned that you journal sometimes um, as a therapeutic.
0: Yeah, no, I felt like yeah. writing down. <clears throat> writing down for me was was like very helpful to me, definitely in those times where you're feeling these these symptoms and these effects more. Writing down things, even similar to you, Richard, I I work with a life coach, and he just said, every morning and every night, write down, like we call them, I am statements. So it's like, I am this, I am that I am that. And eventually, you start to pick up on them. And some of them related to hockey, some of them didn't relate to hockey at all, just life, like about my relationships and things like that. And it really helped me just kind of nail down who I wanted to be and how I wanted to feel. So um, therapy was always big for me. And I think just when the doctor told me that I he's like, you, you have some signs of depression and anxiety. And I had no idea, like when I was 20 years old, I had no idea that I was gonna feel that way because like I said before, I was living out my dream. Like this was, why should I feel this way when I was in such an amazing spot and I was so fortunate. So when I heard that, it was like, okay, I am this, I embrace it and it's like, okay, how how can I get better? And I think that was really important for me, especially at that young age to be like, okay, let's work now. take these strides forward so now I don't have to feel like this or make those feelings a little minimal.
1: Well, I want to um, go to the audience because I see that we have some questions that some of our virtual audience um, has posted. And so the first one that we have is actually a comment, and they want your reaction to that, which is, no one will allow themselves or anyone else to decompress. It comes across, or I've heard that it's lazy when we take time for true downtime. Any reactions to that?
3: Yes, so I just did a professional development conference last week with a group out of DC, and this was actually a huge part of the conversation. And it's true, right? Like, I think though what, and we've got to take advantage of, I think, the opportunities that we have around us, right? Um, What I love about Primera is that you all do a phenomenal job when it comes to like, how can we start to open up not only the conversation, but hopefully some of those actionable steps that we can help our staff and our our community. And I think um, to that, you know, I would encourage us as a people to, um, leadership specifically, right? We've got to be, we've got to obviously be more empathetic, but I think too, just understanding that we're all human, right? To your point of, we all have a mental health. And I think with that being said, um, my reaction is that you're not lazy. Um, And I think that we need that reminder. We have to do a better job of showing ourselves grace and compassion, understanding the fact that we are human and we do not have... I'm not even going to say all the answers. We don't have 25% of them, right? <laughs> and so that being said, we are all going through this journey and this struggle. You're not lazy. Here's my, here's my, my final thought on that. Um, you can't pour from an empty cup. Right. And so I think with that being said, I'd rather you battle and wrestle with that thought of being lazy than trying to come in and bleed out on those that you're supposed to be a help to. And you can't because of the fact that you're not taking time for you. So it's not selfish. It's not lazy. It's literally you giving yourself an opportunity to be refilled so that you can be here for the long haul.
2: Can I uh, add as well? Yeah, I think that's, uh, I I love that. Riley knows I'm a big quote guy. Um, And one quote that, I mean, has continued, I probably said it on the podcast five or six times now, but one quote that has continually kind of resonated with me is, you know, mental health isn't a battle to be won. It's a journey to continue walking. And I think for a lot of us, I mean, we always had, for me at least, I had this misconception that, you know, there's a a magic formula and I need somebody to come and show me the guidelines and do this, do that. Um, But it's realistically, you know, find what works for you. I mean, even, you know, giving yourself time, it doesn't have to be you literally lay face down on the couch, like it doesn't have to be that I mean, even for me, going out for a walk and and listening to, you know, even a different podcast, you know, surrounding myself in a conversation that actually isn't with me, but is allowing myself, you know, time to be like, this is neat, you know, like to be able to hear a new perspective and to be able to click with something or somebody that I never thought I'd click with. I mean, that's important. Um, And I think like I said, there's no magic formula. Um, and I, I, sometimes I do wish there was, and I think a lot of us do, but I mean, being able to embrace the fact that this is a journey, like Riley said, and also the fact that this is hard. I mean, this is tough and there's no, uh, there's no timeline on this. And I think just, you know, that, that everyday thing, uh, I think we, who all of us involved in the, in the accident all, know all too well that, you know, you never know what tomorrow is gonna bring. I mean, tomorrow isn't promised. So just remember to love. And when I say remember to love, remember to love yourself. I mean, it's always about compassion, compassion. And I, you know, having compassion for other people. And I think that's important, but a friend sent me an article about self-compassion. And I don't think a lot of us have, you know, really used that word, you know, to be able to, to look at yourself and understand that, you know, if you have a mistake or you're feeling off today, you're allowed to, you know, you're allowed to experience those blips. You're allowed to experience those little, you know, tough days and those little times when you're you know, not feeling it or you think you're lazy. I mean, that's okay. Give yourself that time. You know, this isn't, uh, yeah, this is uh, this is quite the journey, so.
1: It is, it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint.
2: Right? Exactly. In life, for sure.
1: I, I think one piece I would add
4: to, to um, what you've both said too is that I think part of it is if we can change the narrative just around the terms that we're using, You know, this is not taking a step back. You know, this is not downtime. We're actually taking this time to make progress. This is a step forward to how do I know myself better? How do I help myself refuel and and show up in in the best version of myself that I want to show up as? And so I think if we even start to reframe some of the the terms we use around it, I think it will help maybe gain greater acceptance. And yes, absolutely, the self-compassion piece.
1: I know. I, I mean, a lot of people that know me, I'm a total task checklist, you know, and so you get to my weekend and I'm like, OK, here's my list. And I've learned that Saturday's a good chunk of that day needs to be napping like that's just it, <laughs> it, that, That's just going to happen because that's what I need to refuel okay. after a tough week. Um, so I want to remind the folks here, if you have any questions, feel free to come up to the mics. Um, I'm going to take another question from our virtual audience. Um, And this has to do with um, your identity as a parent or as a new parent. So I know we have a new parent here. And then obviously, um, uh, Dr. Young, you mentioned that you have four children, so you can probably relate to this as well. What advice do you have for parents that are struggling um, with their mental health or sense of identity? I think that many parents of young children struggle with finding themselves again, right? I mean, it, it's a major, major life transition oh, you when right. you.
0: I actually <laughs> typed in and wrote that. Oh,
1: question.
4: you did? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I will, I'll let
0: you answer because you have probably, you obviously. No, no,
4: I, I, go ahead and, and offer I guess your
0: perspective. The, the one thing I think that I've learned, because my wife is absolutely amazing, and she's been so, um, so forward-thinking with how we're going to raise our our child and children, hopefully in the future. But what she kind of told, she sent me a podcast to listen to, and it resonated with me. It was just the idea of conscious parenting and um, being able to sit with your kids and like tell them like it's okay to feel these emotions. And like when your kids in a toy store and he wants a toy but he's not getting a toy and he's freaking out, just be like, I understand you don't like you you want this toy, but I understand you're feeling like this, but we can't do that right now. And just really be able to relate with them. And that that was one piece of the parenting venture that resonated with me and that I will try to do with with our boy. Um, And then for me now, like related to the mental health struggles in in terms of raising him, it's helped me so much to grow my bond with her, Um, especially as we were playing as our our son came in December. So I was playing and my wife would let me nap and she would let me sleep through the night, um, worried about my performance. And then that, that finished. And now it's like full full on daddy duty, and it was an eye opener for me. Um, but it was it was really important for me to lean on her and learn from her, and not be so proud that I couldn't. That I wanted to do things my own way, and she's helped me a ton. So I think the bond between us is is something that, that is really it's strengthened since the child, obviously. But um, just relying on her has helped me a ton.
4: I I love that absolutely love that, I mean, because it's such a, it's such a partnership in, in that, you know, I, when I think about sort of the, the early years with young children, I think as a parent, you have this feeling of, oh, my gosh, I have this life that I'm so responsible for, and, and whatever mistake or misstep I take, it's going to, like, affect them for the whole rest of their life, and, oh, my God, I'm going to ruin my child's life before they even start, you know, those kinds of things, and, and a hefty, hefty dose of self-compassion recognize that you're human, just as we've grown up and recognize that our parents were human. And yeah, we didn't agree with everything they did or all of their decisions, but, but you know they tried their best. And a lot of what I offered um, the parents in my practice were that you, know, you love your child. Recognize that, start from there. So in that instinct, trust that instinct of, of the things that, that you wanna bring into their life for them and then when you do have a misstep and, and they're old enough to have that conversation, admit that you made a mistake. Um, ask for their forgiveness if, if need be, but acknowledge it. Don't just sort of like, well, maybe they'll forget about it. Maybe they didn't notice. We know full well kids notice everything. And so being able to have an open conversation about it because in the end, you're modeling those behaviors. I mean, you know, when you think about all the things we tell our kids to do versus all the things that we are actually doing, you know what they're paying attention to. And so to that end, you know, be honest with them. Or sometimes it's even saying, I know I'm asking you to do this. I know I'm not doing that. Maybe we can do this together. Um, but it's, it's really being as, as open as, as possible um, about things. And, you know, when your kids are older, like, you know, for me this round, when I decided to, to go see a counselor, I actually talked with my kids about it. Hey, I want you guys to know this is what I'm doing because this is what I'm feeling. And it's, this has been a really strange time for me. And, you know, just wanted you to, to, to be aware. And I think sort of at different ages, obviously, you know, it's all in very age appropriate ways. But I think part of that identity as parents is I think if we can stop and not try to be perfect, we recognize we can't be perfect. And just that additional pressure takes away from the joy of being a parent and sharing that time with your kids. And if you're not sure what to do in the moment, you know, go play with them go play a game, go toss a ball, you know, whatever it is, you know, whether you're a professional athlete or not, um, you know, just engage with them in, in the moment, because in the end, those are the things that they'll remember, you know, they it's it's the feeling that they had, not even so much what you said or exactly what you did, but but in that moment, because I keep thinking about it from the same way as, as my kids have gotten older, my youngest is now 17, my oldest is, is 27. And It's wanting them to feel like we are a safe place for them to come back to, um, whatever it is, and that we will always accept them for whatever happens. Um, And quite honestly, as they get older, it takes verbalizing that very directly and not just assuming as well.
1: I think the self-compassion is huge. I mean, I know my therapist gave me some great advice that I've um, really held with me to this day, which is, before kids, and I think this is what I read into that question a little bit, too. Before kids, I was, I was in really good shape. Like, I worked out six days a week and was aerobics instructor. I was a runner. And, and when the kids came, I couldn't do it all. I just couldn't. Yeah. Some people can, and bless their hearts. They're out there with the strollers and the, you know. But she said, you're still an athlete. This stage in your life, you might bring that piece down. And then maybe later in your life, you can bring it back up but give yourself permission Mm -hmm. to do that because we all have multiple identities, right? And so what's hard as a new parent is so much is put into, and you want to put so much into raising that child, but you also have other identities that sometimes take a lesser seat or you're trying to figure out how to juggle them and and they all kind of go up and down throughout life and Mm -hmm. and give yourself permission to do that.
4: And, And being able to show your kids your other identities helps them too you know, to, to see you in, in a more full picture um, also. Yeah, yeah. Oh, one last comment that yeah. I'll make. For new parents especially, don't discount the impact of uh, sleep deprivation. Because when you're oh, super on. tired, you, it's so much easier to be down on yourself mm-hmm. and be critical and, and all of that. You know, when it feels overwhelming, I actually, take Jen's advice, go take a nap. It, it can really <laughs> help a lot, and I, no joke.
1: <laughs> okay, I'm going to go to a live question. I'm short.
4: Um, thank you, first, for everyone being here. This has been an amazing panel. Um, when you st- The question I had is when you take that first step to find a counselor, find a therapist, particularly that connection, um, it, whether you're a person of color, a woman, you're LGBTQ+, trying to find someone who understands you uh, can be really difficult. Um, any recommendations of how to start resources, organizations that may help uh, guide that conversation?
1: Tough
2: one, yeah yeah, I'm just thinking over here.
4: I mean, I, I think I'll start with a very preliminary answer, which is start that conversation with your primary care provider, with your doctor with with somebody that you trust. If you don't have that particular relationship with your doctor or it's hard to get in um, with them, then then talk with friends, people who who look at at health care similarly um, as you that you trust their opinions and and see what their experience has been. How did they go about um, finding somebody? And even if you end up being referred to somebody who says, oh, I'm not taking you patients right now, sorry, then say, great, can you tell me, you know, refer me to somebody who's maybe similar to you or has a similar style, all of that. And then when you actually get that first appointment, think about who you are, what do you need, what's important to you, and then be brave enough to put that on the table and say, this is what I'm looking for, can you do this for me? And if they can't, then then they can. Or even just how they answer that question will will tell you a lot.
1: And be brave enough to move on. And right? be brave enough so, to move like, on. So like so, I just had a recent experience with one of my kids who uh, needed some therapy, where our first our first shot at getting a therapist wasn't a great match, and she was like, oh, I don't want to hurt her feelings, and I was like, I know, honey, but. This is, this, you need to be, feel connected to this person and feel like you're getting something out of it. And we have made a switch and it's, been, it's made all the difference. So sometimes it takes that extra effort, but stick with it. Because once you find somebody, it's really worth it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. OK, let's go to another uh, virtual question. And then I think we have uh, someone queuing up here in the room as well. Um, what can we do for our youth, especially young boys, to break down the male stigma? I have two boys, 12 and 10.
2: Yeah, even for me, um, I mean, I'm obviously learning a lot still (laughs) and I don't have kids or anything, but I I was fortunate enough to coach a a youth hockey team this year. And um, I I received an email after the season and and one of the moms of one of my favorite players uh, sent me an email and just said, you know, um, Solomon struggles with severe anxiety. Um, And he came to me after one of the first practices and he says, you know, Coach Smitty struggles with mental health too. Um, And I think just, you know, hearing that after, you know, going through a season of um, you could recognize that he definitely deals with anxiety and it's, you know, in crowds is tough sometimes for him. But I mean, to see the transformation as well was super refreshing. But um, to hear that, I think it's just a case of once again, you know, not being afraid to just to have that conversation and not even just have that conversation, but to just spit it out. I mean, you never know when somebody needs to hear something. You never know when somebody needs to see something. You never know when somebody needs to listen to something. And um, I even had a, I had a speech one time with a, a group of 13- to 14-year-old hockey, hockey boys. And um, this kid the whole time was looking down. You know, I, I checked him out. I was like, this kid does not care what I'm saying at all. And um, luckily, I ate my words. I, I kid you not, probably three minutes after the speech, he messaged me on Instagram and completely opened up. And I think it's just a, a case of, you know, you'd never know. So just be able to empathize with them. And especially the empathy is a huge portion as well because, I mean, we had a, a, a chat with a, a psychiatrist, Dr. Emily Anhalt. And, and I always get this conversation after, you know, how do you, how do you have these conversations or how, what, what's the best way to do? Or, and it's honestly just a case of empathizing with them by, you know, sharing a little bit about your own story as well. I mean, it's been so, like I said, it's been so incredible to have these conversations with my parents now that, I mean, I'm not saying we neglected to have, um, but an, and unfortunately it took a, a pretty traumatic event for us to have these conversations, but I think not holding back and also understanding that as minor as your story may be or as major or whatever it is, I mean, your story still matters. And it's a case of, you know, like... It could be as small as possible, and it could still have a profound effect on that child. You just never know. Um, I mean, like I said, I'm still learning a lot, and I I have uh, many years of hopefully dealing with uh, youth hockey as well. But that's just kind of my take on that.
3: I love what you said there, Tyler. Like My philosophy is over 7 billion people in the world. So with that being said, like your story, no matter how big or small, is going to connect with somebody in some way, shape, or form. Um, A few things come to mind with that. Um, So you talked about the empathy aspect. I think as we empathize, one of the things I would encourage with empathy is that specifically with young boys, validate their feelings, right? So when they express emotion, when they have those moments where they're showing vulnerability, how can you take that opportunity to validate them, right? Not demonize them, not say, you know, let, let's X out the man up. Because that's where the stigma comes mm-hmm. from. It, it, it. You talked about verbiage. Yeah. How do we change our narrative? How yeah. do we change and relabel what we say? And I think this is a huge part of it. So- When given that opportunity to do so, what do you choose to say in that time that will say, hey, you know what? I I wanna invite you further into this space. Or I guess vice versa. Invite me into it to where, you know, I, I wanna know more about how you feel. And in that, I think that there's a very healthy way where we can validate what they feel from a standpoint of you're feeling this, but also separate it from the fact of who they are. That way, we're not just validating feelings to so say, yeah, you feel this and, and you're depressed. No, we're not labeling you. We're simply saying, you feel something for a reason. Now, let me help you start to uh, navigate this so, so that we can get down to the nitty gritty. Um, I love what you said too about within that, I'm always looking for opportunities to lean in. Specifically, like I ran a big mentoring program back in Chicago before I moved up here, and that was one of the things that I I really started doing. I love, you, you mentioned the whole listener piece, right? And one of the things that I think we can do specifically with our young men is that they might not necessarily open up all the time. So we need to probably lean in a little more in those moments where they give us just a small rod, right, like we gotta catch the bait quick, we have to. It's true, and the reason why is because of the fact that they don't open up much, but here's the thing, if we can take the bait when they do open up, what we have now is an opportunity when they open up the next time, they've got a little bit more of a feeling of comfortability and safety to where they start to open up even more. And in this, we start to build this safe space essentially to where They know I can come here and I can actually fully be myself in this. And I think with that, it gives us an opportunity to where we don't have to ask questions as much because our safe space, so to speak, has given them that opportunity to know without a shadow of a doubt, this is where I can come. You
1: know, there's always that tip. This isn't a new tip. I think a lot of parents know this. But when you're in the car is another good time to have more (laughs) emotional conversations with your kids because you don't have to make eye contact. If you got those young boys that maybe don't want, to, you got a quick little opportunity there. Um, another question in the room.
5: Thanks. Uh, so I appreciate you guys talking about your journeys uh, out of a traumatic event. I'm curious, uh, as we're coming out of pandemic, and maybe that's part of the issue. I've been wrestling with this both as individual, but also as, you know, friend, coworker of. Oh, it's over. No, it's not over. Oh, it's getting better. Oh, it's actually getting worse. And kind of the start-stop emotional feelings either that I'm feeling or that are felt when, you know, here at work or interacting with family. There isn't going to be that, like, you know, victory is announced. And I was curious whether you had any advice talking about journeys of how we can think about this I don't know the next several months next several years of of how we uh, journey together coming out of this dramatic time yeah
3: oh, oh go ahead
0: Ryan. no i I guess the one thing that kind of came to mind there and I know ty with your well we touch on it a lot and then with your clothing line you even touch on it is that idea of vulnerability and I think I read a I remember reading a paper actually when I was at Notre Dame and it was talking about vulnerability and they're just saying like there's so many un there's so much uncertainty of what's going to go on um, and it's one thing that i've grasped and it's helped me is you're going to have days that are good days that are bad you're going to lose people that are close to you you're going to have covid that just turns your life upside down you're going to all these different things that are just inevitable and chaotic and it's just how you can fit in between those times and how you can sort of live between those times and the one thing that stuck out to me about the article is like I think we spoke about this already, but like you come into the world, like so reliant on your parents and people that are close to you. And then you all of a sudden start going through this band where you become isolated and you think you can do it all by yourself. Then you start to get a little older and now you rely on your doctors and people that are close to you to help you live and, and whatnot. And it's like, well, why can't we just rely on each other during that bulk part of our life? So I guess like, For me, and we talk about connection and community, I think just relying on those people close to us during those times that that can kind of help push you through.
3: Uh, I was going to say to that, um, the therapist who did the forward for my latest book, we were on this this conference last week together. She said something that really hit me. She was like, sometimes trauma isn't the event, it's our response to it. And that really hit me, um, just in a way where I was like, wow. That being said, it, it led me to this thought of even though we can't control the situation, the one thing that we have power over is how we control ourselves in the situation, right? And so to your question and to Riley's point, um, I think through the journaling aspect, right? What I love about journaling is that it gives us an opportunity to start noticing our own patterns. Good, bad, ugly, indifferent, whatever, right? But in this though, with the patterns, we get a chance to see how how we respond in different moments. And I think between getting that chance to see identity, showing yourself grace, embracing community, um, that could be a really healthy combination that will allow us to say, hey, whatever comes within this day, I'm making a commitment that I might need to adapt. And in this adapting, it's okay, because it's still gonna lead me to the, 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 the goal at the end But for now, how can I just find hope within where I am in this span of this day? And I think when we can take that approach, what it does is it kind of pulls us away from our expectations that we have. And maybe just even if it's for 10 minutes, right, you get that little small break to say, I know that my schedule today probably looks like I got meetings galore and I'm not feeling like it. But where's my window where I can breathe? Where's my prep on the front end before I go into the day? What little moments can I come up for air in between it? And then what's my plan for once I'm done with this? That way I can kind of be restored. That's really how I've been approaching in the last two years. And I found it to be really helpful in those times where I got my plan and my expectation and it don't happen. And instead of just like throw the whole day away at 10 o'clock in the morning, I'm like, no, like, you know what, we can we can adapt to this. So
1: i'm sad to say this that we are down to our last three minutes together it went by really really quickly um i want to just ask for kind of last If you go back to either when you were in your most challenging moment or if you're thinking about those listening that might be going through a particularly challenging moment last words of advice
2: ah geez Uh, i'll keep it quick um i think to kind of touch on both your questions um the biggest kind of eye-opener i had with my therapist was Every time I went in, I was always talking about, you know, what I've been doing. But also, like, I really focused in on, like, you know, how my relationships are and, like, what those people are doing. And she always kind of came back to the fact that, okay, but this is you. This is your life. You know, you're allowed to, you know, you're allowed to take those steps and you're also allowed to just, you know, focus in on you every once in a while. And I think that was just kind of a very eye-opening thing for me to realize because I, I care so much about people that I sometimes kind of get lost in that translation of you know trying to figure out how best to, to nurture this relationship so I don't lose this person in my life. But I mean, she also shared a pretty important quote once again, um, she said, for me, obviously, the Canada-wide spotlight was a huge thing, but she said, she said, Your spotlight can be the light at the end of other people's tunnels. Um, I kind of switched it to, you know, your story can be the light at the end of other people's tunnels. Um, and I think that's just something that I always rely on. Um, last thing uh, with a clothing line, I have a hoodie on the back that says, Tomorrow is in Promise, Remember to Love. I was in Boston doing a live podcast with Riley. A guy came up to me at the bar and he said, I'm surprised I'm still here. And I just really thank you for, for that. You know, it's just like something like that. You just, you just never know. So that's my last thought.
3: Riley's probably going to close us out, so I'll be quick, too. Um, I mentioned hope a second ago. Um, That would be my last piece. There is hope. I think for us, though, how can we reframe our ideology around hope, right? For some of us, hope during this time and maybe over the last two years has looked like the fact that you were able to just get out of bed and turn your computer on to be present for the day, right? But you're sitting here now in this room, you're watching live, like that is hope. And hope is going to look different each day. But I think in this, how can we reframe our mindset to say, while I have this big expectation, there are baby steps in between that are going to lead me to it. So let me focus in on where I can find hope in those small moments.
0: Yeah, I mean, these guys hit the nail on the head. And I think like what I was talking about with the vulnerability thing has been huge for me. And then what I hit on when we first started is just, it's, it's constant work. And it's just like the way you go to the gym and you get your cardio in, get your, your strength work in and stuff. You gotta be devoted to, to putting in work and you gotta lean on those people around you. And you shouldn't be ashamed of that because I think if people close to anyone in this room were to come to you and ask for help, you would be arms wide open and you wanna help them. So I think we can look at the people in our lives the same way and, and, uh, and go from there. Thank
1: you. Well, thank you to our panelists. I'm just going to close with a few snippets that I heard all of you speak. Life is worth living. You're not alone. It takes work. Uh, You can't pour from an empty cup. um, And it's a journey. So um, with that, I just want to thank everybody who came out here today. I'm super grateful for all of your time today. I think it was a fabulous discussion. Um, And thank you, everybody.
2: Thanks for listening to today's episode of Speak Your Mind. We hope you enjoyed the conversation with today's guest. You can stay up to date with new Speak Your Mind content by subscribing to our podcast channel or visiting torchpro.com for more. See you next show and have an awesome rest of your day.